0: As Christians, we like to quote Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. But is that an absolute maxim? What does it mean to train up our students before they go off to college? Join us on the Real Issue podcast as we answer these questions and a whole lot more. And you are listening to The Real Issue Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, This past week, we did uh, some interesting uh, presentations the last couple weeks. And now that the students are home and they are going to be enjoying a couple months, maybe a month and a half, depending on when your student starts at school, they're going to be enjoying some vacation time. But you know, you often hear the horror stories. You hear the horror stories of, you know, uh, my student will never fall away, or they will go off to college, and they will get influenced. And by Thanksgiving break, they end up skeptics. They come home Christmas, semester break, and they give you the bad news. Mom, Dad, I don't believe what you believe anymore. This is what we're going to talk about on The Real Issue, because this is a sore spot. This is a sore spot, I'm sure, not, for, not just for parents, not just for pastors, but for those of us who have been doing ministry among students and talking to parents And hearing the maxim, train up a child in the way he or she should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. But the problem is, what does it mean to train? See, the key word in that verse is train up a child. You know, parents will tell us, you know, my child will never (laughs) fall away. And yet, uh, these folks are homeschool parents. These folks are Christian school parents. These folks are from Christian homes. And the only thing I can say to them when they tell me this is, I pray that they don't. And I say it with a cringe inside. Because the overconfidence is not strong enough to withstand the cultural Marxism of the secular university. You know, my friends... Your kids are home from school for a couple months, maybe a month and a half, a couple months and three quarters, depending on when they go back to school. And What are you going to do to re-insulate or reboot your students' faith while they're home? Some of them actually need a spiritual rebooting. Some of them need a rebooting by your churches, by your student ministries. And if you have a college ministry and you're a pastor listening to this, thank you. But you also need to be thinking about rebooting your students as far as their faith. So what they will hear their first year now, they've gone through their first year, they've already heard it, and now what are the evidences for the Christian faith? You know, if you don't take this seriously, I don't know what to tell you. I really don't. You know, I, I'm afraid this podcast is going to be a little messy this week, but it has to be said. You know, when we look at that word in Proverbs 22, 6, talks about train up a child. Well, you know, most of the student ministries that are going on, youth ministries, are nothing but strumming guitars and eating pizza, building relationships, but not building the f- mind and not building the, the courage of the students before they go off to college. Oh, sure, they get a, a student Bible, or they get Josh McDowell's evidence that ha- demands a verdict, or Frank Turek's book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, but do you expect them to read that their first year? That's like giving your skeptical kid a book and say, here, read this. They're not going to read it. You as a parent need to be the apologist. You you as a parent, as a student leader, as a youth minister, or whatever your title is in the church— You need to be the case maker for your students so that you can make the case for your students so that they can go away confident so they don't have to put up with the pontificational nonsense that comes from the cultural Marxist from the professorial lectern. Now, if if it sounds like I'm a little gruff about this, I don't know of any other way to put it. For example, let me tell you some of the things that they have to say about this. This is from... And and I'll link this to this link this week on this podcast. It's it's called "Updated: Are Young People Really Living Leaving Christianity?" It was put out by Jay Warner Wallace. That's dated for eleven January twenty nineteen, and much has been written about biblo- both biblical literacy of the teenage believers and the flight from young of of young people from the church. And many have observed this trend and. Like J. Warner Wallace, I too have witnessed it anecdotally as a youth pastor and as a student minister talking to students on campus saying that they come from Christian homes and that they're now an atheist or an agnostic or a nun. When some writers and Christian observers who have done the research deny the flight of young people altogether, but the growing statistics folks should alarm us. And I'm going to link the statistics. I'm going to link the study. And there's also something in this where at the end of this show today, I hope to lay out for you what a a good family program would look like to at least lessen the chances of when your student or your young adult leaves home they won't walk away their first year. Folks, we don't need to be teaching why the Christian faith is true. We need to be training. We need to be loving up on our students. We need to be engaging them in the battle with them in the battle for the faith. You know, Jay Warner Wallace just came out with a book with uh, Sean uh, Sean McDowell so the, jex- so the next generation will know, preparing young children, or young, not young children, but young Christians for a challenging world. I would recommend that you get that book. I would recommend that you get that book, that you get Cold Case Christianity and Forensic Faith. And the reason why I recommend Cold Case Christianity is because that's J. Warner Wallace's testimony about how he went and he looked and investigated the evidences for the New Testament and how it was a good, solid case for the evidence of the writers. You know, the Bible is being attacked in the university in New Testament classes. Bart Ehrman in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, goes and says, well, we don't have the originals, and then there's 400,000 variances that are in the text. And your children go look like, look at the, the professor like the dashboard doggy going and a nodding their head in affirmation going saying, yes, this is incredible. This can't be, this can't be true. But none of those variances touch a single Christian doctrine. But Ehrman won't tell you your kid that. But that's what's happening. You know, when you look at the statistics, when we look at the book findings that are out there, the majority of teenagers are incredibly inarticulate about their faith, religious beliefs and practices, and its place in their lives. The de facto dominant religion of among contemporary U.S. teenagers is what they call moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth, but God wants us to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And good people go to heaven when they die. Folks, that is moralistic therapeutic deism and that is where your kids and folks, I'm sorry, that's what churches, church student ministries are teaching the kids and they don't even know it. You're saying, Rob, you're being rough. Well, I'm tired. Here's another one. The state of theology today. In the survey of theological beliefs put out by Ligonier Ministries, this is uh, the theological beliefs researchers have asked self-professing Christians... Self-professing Christians to respond to a series of statements related to classic historic Christian doctrine. In every answer offered related to these theological beliefs, young people between the ages of 18 to 34 consistently have held heretical views at a higher percentage than older respondents. Young people who respond themselves, as Christians, are far more, far more likely to hold views that are not Christian. How are religious colleges and u- university professors today? About 25% of the college professors are professing atheists and agnostics. 5-7% to 7% of the general population is atheistic or agnostic. Only 6%, 6% of college professors have said the Bible is actually the word of God. 51% described it as an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts. 75% believe religion does not belong in public schools. And we go and we say, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they're old and they will not depart from it, you haven't trained your son or your daughter. You haven't trained your son or daughter for the battle that, that they're going to face. And that's why our kids today are getting killed. Getting killed ideologically, socially, morally, and philosophically. You're saying, Rob, you're being rough. Oh, I haven't. i I'm just I'm just beginning. I'm just beginning. Faculty are almost unanimous in their belief that evangelical Christians that are fundamental should keep their religious beliefs out of American politics. Read my blog post that I just posted this week on who, which, who is the one responsible for legislating morality. Do you realize, and I'm not chasing a rabbit here, do you realize that with the with the, the primaries coming up this week uh, for local and, and state offices... That when you go to the polls, you're going to be voting for the person that best matches your moral underpinnings, ethics, values, finances, and everything else the category under the sun. Faculty are much less religious than the general public. The American public is much more likely to say that religion is very important in their everyday lives and attend religious services more frequently than faculty. The faculty in colleges today is a mission field for us today. We need to be reaching out to faculty as well as students. Why? Because faculty, professors, instructors have an influence that lasts for up to 30 years of every student that they teach. Why is that? Because what happens is they go into the marketplace of ideas after graduation with the worldview or some a little bit of what they learned at home mixed and mingled, smorgasborded, if you will. And they They bring that in there and the lines keep blurring and gl- and things get grayer. Truth is no longer absolute. Religions don't actually, uh, they're, you know, don't contradict one another. And you know what? It doesn't matter what I believe because all religions basically say the same thing. That is what is being pushed in the colleges and the universities today. Faculty are almost unanimous in their belief that evangelical fundamentalists should keep their religions out of, out of American politics. You know, separation of church and state nonsense. This, folks, is very sobering. Although faculty generally oppose religion in the public square, many endorse the idea that Muslims should express their religious views and religious beliefs in American politics. Faculty are less likely to endorse evangelical Christians expressing their beliefs in American politics. It's good for the Muslims, but it's not good for evangelical Christians. And then, of course, the study finds of the American uh, Religious Identification Survey, the numbers of people who identify themselves as Christians has dropped from 85% in 1990 to 76% in 2008. But 52% of Americans identify themselves as Protestant or non-Catholic Christian denominations, according to the the poll, and that's down from 60% in 1990. Folks, I don't know whether this is rattling your cage or not. I hope it is. But I'm saying this as a sheepdog. And I hope you don't go Chihuahua on me. Gallup Poll's identification poll, while numbers of Americans identifying as Christians, is still high, 75%. Remember, this is January. It has dropped 5% in 2008. What in the world is going on? what happens to our students when they go off to college when they go off to college they go through a transformation and i'll tell you what that is when they when we come back
1: welcome to the one minute apologist we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions So I know that outside of being a detective, you served for some time as a pastor as well. You've had a unique look as a layperson and as ministry and now as a Christian apologist to really be able to see the church from different angles. What kind of advice would you give to pastors for equipping their church in this melting pot culture of beliefs, so that we can see less people making a mass exodus from the church?
2: Yeah, I think it's a challenge. First of all, I have a heart for pastors because I think what they face is is a, really an incredible task. And, and it's, I can't even one human if do, even do this job anymore, I don't know. But but I can tell you that I think it's, it's important for pastors to realize there's two prongs you've got to prepare your people for. One is, are our, 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 our congregations prepared to make a case against a world that doesn't even accept any of our claims. But the other problem, of course, is internal. Is do we even know enough about what our system teaches, about what our system claims? Do we have enough systematic theology to be able to withstand uh, error that's in the church? So you've got two fronts. One, the outside world is pressing against us, and the inside turmoil we sometimes see with people who hold errant views. So I think you have two, two prongs there. But I recently, it was interesting, I recently had, I did a, a conference at a church that gave an entire month every summer to an Apologetics five-week series or four-week series. And I thought, what, my gosh, think about it, giving out four four weeks out of 52 to Apologetics. I think in the end, all of us as church leaders are gonna have to decide what percentage of Christian case-making should warrant in our calendars each year. Mm -hmm. And we can talk a lot about wanting to change the course of our churches or wanting to get our, our people. All of our changes have to begin with a calendar we got to say to ourselves, okay, so if this is important to us, you know, if I wanted to know, Bobby, what's important to you, I need to look at your checkbook and your calendar because what you do and what you spend your money on are probably what you're, what you're passionate about. And as a church, too, I think we need to do the same thing. What are we spending our time on and then what are we giving our money to? That'll tell us a lot about who we are as a people. So I think my, my encouragement for pastors is, I know it's a big, tough job, but at some point, we're probably all going to have to make a decision about what percentage of our church life we're going to give over to the defense of the gospel to preparing our people to make a, a, the case for Christ and I think that's really the challenge we all have I think I think we just to kind of stand tall to that challenge and embrace it rather than, than hand it off to somebody else again we write books on apologetics I would love for pastors to become the books on apologetics for their congregations
1: Welcome to the One Minute minute Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions.
3: Frank, is truth true for you but not for me? I always hear that and I usually say, is that true for everybody? Is true for you but not for me true for everybody? Because if true for you but not for me is true for everybody, then true for you and not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. (laughs) I know that can give you intellectual constipation, but that's because it's self-defeating. It's actually, there's an easier way of illustrating this true for you but not for me say sure go try that with your bank teller go to your bank teller one day and say look i'd like a hundred thousand dollars out of my account the bank looks <laughs> your account says i'm sorry sir you only have forty seven dollars and sixteen cents in your account that's easy to get the money bobby you simply say that's true for you but not for me give me the hundred grand are you going to get the money no you're not if it's true there's only forty seven dollars and sixteen cents in your account that's true for all people at all times in all places when referring to your account at that time it's just true And by the way, it's true that Jesus rose from the dead if he really did. That's true for all people at all times and all places. Mm -hmm. If he really did. Of course, it's not true if he didn't rise from the dead. And I think the evidence is quite strong that he did. So saying it's true for you but not for me may sound good. It's the mantra of our culture, but it's self-defeating. It's logically self-defeating, and it just doesn't work.
1: Sounds like you're trying to say that truth corresponds to reality. I am. I'm
3: actually trying to say that.
0: Are back and the question for our show today is is proverbs 22 verse 6 train up a child in the way they should go and when they're old they will not depart from it is that a guarantee well it all depends on what you mean by train and are you training or are you teaching your your children that the Christian faith is true. Let me give you another resource while I think of it. I just come across my mind. You, if you're a Christian parent, you want to pick up Natasha Crane's books. You want to pick up Natasha Crane's book. i try to remember the title. One of them is 65 questions on talking to your uh, children about God and Christianity, I think, and then the other one is how to talk to your children about God. Uh, Natasha's a, a friend of ours, and she's done a great work. And she started blogging a few years ago, and uh, all of a sudden, she started getting comments from atheists, and that's what prompted her two books. I'm not sure if he's, she's working. I'm not sure if she's working on another one right now, but there's others. Alisa uh, Childers is another one. Mama Bear Apologetics is another one. Hillary Ferrer. You'll definitely want to get your hands on some of those resources that you can use to go and train your kids. And when I say train your kids, I'm talking about sitting down and spending time and asking them hard questions. You know, youth want to be challenged. They don't need to be spoon fed. Here's an interesting factor in this report that I'm going to link to this episode. Youth Theological Institute at Emory University in in Georgia says this, there appears to be no shortage of teenagers who want to be inspired and make the world better, but the version of Christianity some are taught doesn't inspire them to change anything that's broken in the world. Listen to this, teens want to be challenged. They want their tough questions taken on. We think that they want cake, but they actually want steak and potatoes. Yum. And we keep giving them cake. Churches, not just parents, share some of the blame for teens' religious apathy. The gospel of niceness can't teach teens how to confront tragedy it can't bear the weight of deeper questions why are my parents getting a divorce why did they my best friend commit suicide why is the econ- why in this economy can i get a good job i was promised if i was a good kid folks we're selling our kids down the river we're giving them a bill of goods and we're not training and what happens when they go off to college? I did a podcast, and I've got a, I have got think I've got a blog posting. Help, my student just fell away from the faith. Let me just give you a quick summation of what happens. Your student, come August, they go and they get the ride to college, and mom and dad, they go and unload the van, and they bring the luggage and the bedding and all of that stuff little bit of the library, the music library, and stuff from home, and they bring them to their room, and then they get them all set up, they're introduced to their dorm mate, introduced to some friends, go through some orientation with the parents, and then comes the time where the parents leave, mom, maybe dad are in tears. They're driving off. They're looking through the rearview mirror and wondering what is going to happen to their son or their daughter. Uh, Nowadays, they're going to go and change their gender because they don't feel like they're the gender that God created them. Or somewhere in between because they're told by some professor who holds that view that, you know, you really don't have to be, or you're really not if you don't feel. You know, heck, I can identify as a 10-foot Chinese woman if that were true. But it's not true. (laughs) Folks, we're in trouble. We are in trouble. What happens? I told you I was going to get there. First off, their faith quiets. They still profess to be Christians. They might have a skeptical roommate. Uh, They might have a skeptical dorm buddy, but they're going to meet other students in there and they go and they find out, well, you're a Christian. Oh, well, well, yeah, well, yeah, I might be, but you know, I was raised in a Christian home, but you know, I'm kind of wondering if Christianity is true. Oh yeah, sure. This is, you know, truth is relative sex, you know, outside of marriage before marriage is okay. You know, there's no God. God's for fairy tales or stuff like that. And they, what happens is they, they turn inward. They get quiet. Their faith has come under attack by peers, by professors, and they just go quiet. And they just don't say anything. They might have a devotional life when nobody's in the room. They might pull out their Bible. But then, as time goes on, their faith quits. They walk away from the Lord, some permanently, because the insulation has worn out, because they've insulated themselves. And that insulation has worn out in the quieting phase, because what has happened is they're isolated. They're insulated themselves. There's a sense of loneliness, and what happens is they... That loneliness keeps gnawing at them with no alternatives instead of responding to the sinful nature. And, and they begin listening to the alternatives. Mom and dad are not there to coach them. Mom and dad are not there to guide them. Your youth, Their youth pastor is nowhere to be found to feed them pizza to encourage them so they feel isolated. <coughs> Young and impressionable college students in high school Uh, Being programmed to believe that truth becomes relative, morals and moral choices become relative, or a matter of personal preference. And where does this attack from? Again, it comes from their peers and their professors. I could give you some examples, but I'm not going to do that. But what happens next is that they become part of the Exodus and the per- percentages are still seventy-five to eighty-five percent of the kids coming out of Christian homes are walking away because they weren't trained. Rob, are you saying that Proverbs 22.6 six is not relevant for an evangelical Christian? Yes, and no. Yes, it is not relevant if you're just teaching them what Christians believe. But no, it is relevant in the fact that you need to train them on not just what we believe, but why we believe is true. And youth ministers, you need to jump on board with that too. Folks, I could read you quotes from professors who are out there gunning for your kids. Let me give you one. Stephen Weinberg of MIT, Harvard, and now teaching at University of Texas, harbors anti-religious agenda expressed by another guy by the name of Richard Rorty. He's an atheist and physicist. Weinberg has said, I personally feel that the teaching of modern science is corrosive of religion. Science is corrosive of religion, belief, religious belief and that I'm all for that. If scientists can destroy the influence of religion on young people, then I think it may be the most important contribution that we can make. And he's speaking as a professor. Did you hear that, parents? What happens? They insulate themselves. Then they isolate themselves. Their faith quits. And then they become part of of the percentages, part of the statistics. That's the time when their their faith totally quits. You get the phone call. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. I got something to tell you. Listen to Frank Turek sometime. A YCrossExamined.org got started. Why ministries like this one exist? Because, folks, we are here trying to help you, empower you to communicate and articulate the Christian faith and ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ so that your son or your daughter will be a missionary. And that they'll glorify God in the great commandment of loving God with their heart, soul, and mind, and loving their neighbors themselves, loving one another as in the church as Christ has loved us. Because He said, "By this you know that we're you're my." That they'll know that you're my disciples, and then going out in the great commission, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that we've commanded. He's commanded us, and lo, He's with us always, even to the end of the age. You know, when you're moralistic, therapeutic deist. you don't feel, feel God is with you. And folks, it's a very very lonely feeling. But folks you know faith can quicken. Faith can quicken and this is where I want to pick up the encouragement here because there's numerous opportunities to inoc- inoculate, for students to inoculate themselves. Before they go off to college, and folks, you know, this it's not too late. It's not too late. Your student is not a lost cause, even if they're a sophomore or a junior. And they come home and they're coming to church with you. You need to encourage your youth minister to do nothing but I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Or teach out of forensic faith or cold case Christianity. Or... Conversational Evangelism by David Geisler, or some of the other resources that are out there, you can go to roblundbergapologetics.com and you can go to our links page, which is right on the top navigation bar. You don't have to go fishing for it. It's right there, right, right in front of your eyes. And go and just scroll down to some of the sources that we have there. And I'll tell you, there's a plethora of them I put on there for you. You could go to our resources pages, and I have PDFs of talks that we have gone and done. Things ranging from truth, God's existence, miracles, the problem of evil, and the authenticity of the Bible. A couple of those. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, there's plenty of resources out there for you. Plenty of resources out there. But see, your faith, their faith doesn't have to quit. They can do is they can get inoculated. Apologetics training needs to be cumulative and taken personal ownership of of what is learned. And, folks, the inoculation is in the form of not a quick talk or going to a six to eight week study, filling in blanks, and watching a video like a lot of churches do. This is inoculate. This kind of inoculation is not the kind that will work with the thinking that will cover their semester or while they are there for two or four years. No, it won't we'll do that. This is for life, folks. We need to be doing this training for life. Churches need to get a, in their DNA a case-making type curriculum, an apologetics, if you if you like that word and you're not afraid of that word, an apologetics equipping that that you can go on, you can put in your budget so that before they go off to college, when they're home on, on winter break or when they come home for the summer, you have you have an apologetic speaker. You have us. We'll come. We'll travel. Um, you know, we can come. Uh, you got the $1 apologist here. You can pay $10,000 apologist. You can pay the $1 million apologist like the Ravi Zacharias's and the J. Warner Wallaces and others. But folks, we need to come together. We need to come together, and we need to equip our kids so that they will survive. You know, because, again, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, thirty every 30, every 30 years, and not every 30 years, well, I can almost say every 30 years there may be a cultural shift. If I think back to, think back 30 years ago, my goodness, some of the things that are going on today were never thought of 30 years ago. So I guess that's probably correct. But what you have in the colleges today, the the world view is cultural Marxism, and and the social justice movement. What I talked about last week is not social justice, it not not in a biblical sense. It is actually cultural Marxism, and it's being put in the churches too. Go back and listen to the podcast I shared with you last week. Folks, we need to be training our kids. You know, back when we were student ministers, back when we were youth ministers in Purcell, Oklahoma, and Schenectady, New York, my wife and I, Kathy and I, we, we took our students through um, Josh McDowell's books. Um, uh, Don't Check Your Brains at the Door was one good one. That, those were short little snippets, short little snippets of questions that, that could be answered In a a, um, a moment, and I'll tell you, it was really, really good stuff. And some of our students back in those days, they come back and they share how grateful they are that they're still walking in the faith. Oh, we've had some that have fallen away, but I don't think they really had faith back then either. They went through the motions. But then again, you don't know. So what do, what what does a healthy upbringing look like? You know, in, in the book, Souls in Transition by Christian Smith and Patricia Snell, published in 2009, Oxford University Press, souls in transition, the religious and spiritual lives of emerging adults. Parents are the most crucial and powerful socializers in the lives of their adolescents. The adolescent years are not a time to disengage as a parent. Growing adolescent independence often necessitates negotiation. If adolescents experience parents who are religiously withdrawn, and functionally absent, then the faith of the emerging adult likely will also be vacuous, directionless, and empty. The more adults involved in the lives of their kids, the adolescents, the better off they will be. And this means that ministries to youth and families must incorporate loving, agenda-free adults into the lives of the ministry. And this is where we see success. Ministries to youth matter now more than ever. With the breakdown of the family and the systematic erosion of adult support, congregational youth ministers are more necessary than ever before. Congregational youth ministers... People in the congregation going and and putting into the lives of their kids, of the kids. Christians are often accused of being hate-filled hypocrites. There's a book out, Christians are hate-filled hypocrites and other lies you'll be told, or you've been told, a uh, a sociologist shatters the myths from the secular and Christian media, 2010. Bradley R.E. Wright from Bethany House 2010, the book findings, parents of students who did not leave the church emphasize religion twice as much as those who, whose students who had left the church. Students who stayed in church through college said the first thing they do when they have doubts or questions was talk to their parents and read their Bibles with them. Also, David Kinnaman in his book, thats an, here's another book that you need to pick up. You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Church, Rethinking Faith. Nearly 25% of the 18 to 29-year-olds interviewed said Christians demonize everything outside the church most of the time. 22% also said the church ignores real-world problems, and 18% said that their church was too concerned about the negative impact of movies, music, and video games. 33% of survey participants felt that church is boring. 20% of 20 of those who attended as a teenager said that God appeared to be missing from their experience of church. That's really scary. Many young adults do not like the way churches appear to be against science. Over 33% of young adults said that Christians are too confident they know all the answers. 25% of them said that Christianity is anti-science. Christianity is not anti-science. God is the God of the whole show. 17% of young adults say that they've made mistakes and feel judged in the church because of them. Two out of five young adults Catholics said that the church's teaching on birth control and sex are out of date. 29% of young Christians said that churches are afraid of the beliefs of other faiths and they feel they have to choose between their friends and their faith. And over 33% of young adults said that they feel like they can't ask life's most pressing questions in the church. And 23% said they had a significant intellectual doubts about their faith. Folks, let me just jump in on this whole thing on doubts real quickly here. Doubts are healthy. Doubts help the mind learn. Doubts help you rethink and reposition if you're you're off track, help get you on track. Doubts are okay. And we need to remember that this is very, very important. So, what does it look like? Families and faith, how religion is passed down across the generations. Vern Begston, Norella Putney, Susan Harris have come up with this great list. Here it is. Number one, parents continue to be the single greatest influence in their child's faith. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. When a child sees and hears that faith actually makes a difference in mom and dad's lives, they are much more likely to follow suit. Young adults are more likely to share their parents' religious beliefs and participation if they feel they have had a close relationship with those parents. And young Christians who leave the faith are far more likely to return when parents have been patient with them and supportive and perhaps more tolerant and open than they have been before the prodigal's departure. Some time ago, my daughter was going through a difficult time. And she said, Dad, I think I'm going to become an atheist. I looked at her, and I didn't look at her shocked. I think it was for shock effect. And I said, well, that's good, honey. At least you know where you are positioning yourself so that we can help you work through it. And she just looked at me and said, really? She says, I think I'm a Christian. <laughs> this was the young lady you heard a few weeks ago going a Summit. I asked her today when we were getting ready. I was planning this podcast. And I said to her, I said, teaching versus training. As a young student, what have you received? And she said, Dad, I've received both. And I breathed a sigh of relief. Five reasons millennials stay closely connected to the church. They develop meaningful relationships with millennials. They teach millennials to study and discern what's happening in the culture. They help millennials discover their own mission in the world rather than ask them to wait their turn. They teach millennials a more potent theology of vocation or calling, and they help millennials develop a lasting faith by facilitating a deeper sense of intimacy with God. What is the result? This is what I'll close with. This is from Jenna Magruder and Ben Trueblood, 2018, a recent book that came out. The child will regularly read the Bible while growing up. They will regularly spend time in prayer while growing up. They will regularly serve in the church while growing up. The child listened primarily to Christian music. The child participated in church mission trips and projects. In addition, they found that parents who has successfully passed on their faith to their children, typically were involved in the following activities. Here they are. Reading the Bible several times a week, taking part in a service project or Christian mission trip as a family, sharing their faith with unbelievers, and encouraging teenagers to serve in the church. Train up a child in the way that should go. When you train them, when they are old, they will not Depart from it. But if you're just teaching them that Christianity is true, you run the risk of being a part of the statistics. Like I said, this podcast was a little messy today. But I'll promise you this, that I will put this report on the link so that you can see the statistics yourself and that you go and say that Rob was not blowing smoke up anybody's kilt. Folks, we can turn it around. We can stem the tide. It's not too late, even though our culture is going sidewards. Our families are very, very important. We let us help empower you? You can go to our website. Go to roblundbergapologetics.com. Check out our website. I've got a link uh, on the top that says book me. You can see everything you need to see about for me as a speaker. If you'd like to make a donation, I'm just asking you to maybe sacrifice a cup of coffee per week, $5 a a month. Uh, That's a coffee at Starbucks, a a Java chip with whip in a grande size. I'm asking you if you will do that so that you can help us help you stem the tide in this ministry. Folks, we really care about the church. We care about pastors. Folks, this might have been a little rough. I'm not going to apologize for the roughness. Um, I've, everything that I've shared with you can be backed up. And as a, as somebody who has been involved over 30 years in student ministry, I've seen it. I've seen the battle. I've seen ways that we can equip, and we are forming ways to equip students. Speaking of such, October, not October, August 9th and 10th, I will be one of the speakers and Q&A participants at Iglesia Cristo La Roca's Apologetics Boot Camp. I will be there with my friend Juan Valdez and, and hot seat buddy Manuel Mena as we will be engaging questions from students and young adults just before school starts. So we're looking forward to that. I'm hoping to possibly do an interview with one of the men as we get close to that. Maybe see if I can get Juan Valdez to do an interview. Once I figure out how to use Skype, see if we can get that done. So thank you for listening to this episode, this show of The Real Issue Podcast. We'll be back with you next week. And I'll tell you, it'll be um, less painful. We, are, um, we hope that the Holy Spirit will use what we have shared with you and that what you, um, what you heard today will cause you to quicken and move into action. So until next week, this is Rob Lundberg from The Real Issue, Apologetics Ministry and the Virginia Center for Public Christianity. We just put our Facebook page up on that. We're seeking to empower Christians and help Christians in the public square share their faith, answer tough questions from skeptics, and also be able to share Jesus with somebody who has no intention of in believing what you and I believe. We're out there trying to do the same thing I'm going to close with. Folks, as you go out this week, I pray that God will give you a divine appointment to go out and share the truth about Jesus Christ and about the Christian faith, that they will, that, they'll, that there will be an empowerment that you'll have from the Holy Spirit to answer the tough questions. If you've listened to us for the last two, three years or so, you'll, you'll know that we are here to serve you. If you have any questions, you can go and email us at realissueapologetics at yahoo.com. Realissueapologetics is one word. And you can go and find us on the web Find us on Facebook, like us on Facebook. We're here to serve you. And as we go out, we'll go out together. And the charge, as you know, if you've listened to us over the last week, is for all of us to do this. Go out and give them heaven. And we'll be back with you next week. Lord bless.